1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You may have heard of the name Luke Hilgerman before. He was the former director of, or executive director of, Hunter Nation. And he has recently, as of three months ago, been named as the new executive director of the International Order of T. Roosevelt, IOTR, which is a split away from the original Shikar Safaris. This is Shikar Safaris Foundation that has now formed its own, essentially, organization. And so we had Aurelia Skipworth, the original executive director, on here. And I wanted to invite Luke on here as they have shifted a little bit in terms of the projects that they're doing and their efforts. And I wanted to sort of give you the opportunity to hear from the new executive director about the kinds of things that IOTR is getting involved with. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Thirty-three degrees in Minnesota. Do you guys consider that summer? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we had to put away the snowmobile suits, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of guys wearing t-shirts today, which is pretty. <laughs> You're born and raised in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wisconsin boy. Yeah, Wisconsin boy. Okay. Well, that that is temperatures about the same, right? Yeah. We just have better football teams. Their Oof. trophy case is empty, and we have, I don't know, six or seven, I think, world championships for are sure. We talking, are we talking college World Series, or are we talking about the NFL? Yeah, NFL. Did you play? I did. I played for the Wisconsin Badgers, yeah. What position? You're a big boy. Yeah, offensive tackle. So Okay, loved it. Yeah, loved it. Unbelievable. Yep. Got to uh, be there when they won two Rose Bowls and 
Ron Dane won the Heisman Trophy, so it was a pretty awesome time oh, to be man. Able- Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Luke Hilgerman, welcome back to the Blood Origins podcast. Same person, different role, different job. Yeah, yeah, yeah man, it's, uh, it's an, been an exciting few months here. Uh, obviously, really loved the work that we were doing at Hunter Nation, uh, but got a call um, around September, October from chairman of our board of directors, a guy named Wes Bates, who was the founder yep. and president of Stanley Steamer Corporation. And Wes said, yep. hey, um, we're thinking about taking this thing in a different direction, and we keep coming back to your name as somebody who could probably help us build the capabilities we're looking at to have a much greater impact on the future of mm-hmm. hunting and conservation. So they offered me the job, and uh, pretty tough to turn down an opportunity like this to work for a, a group that I think is not only well-positioned, but has the history and uh, the firepower behind it to make a big difference that hopefully protecting yeah. and carrying on these traditions that you and I love, man. Well, let's talk about history because IOTR doesn't have any history, right? But maybe yeah, it's, the, it's the previous history that we're talking about. Correct. Yeah. So IOTR is a rebranded name, uh, but the organization, the foundation is something that's been there for about 50 years. Uh, it was the Shikar Safari Club International Foundation. Um, one of the most prominent hunting groups in the country. Um, yeah. Some some of the members that have been involved in this thing have donated tens of millions of dollars to yep. various organizations to protect hunting, conservation, mm-hmm. and advocacy of all different levels. And uh, to have those those folks involved is pretty exceptional. Um, and I think it's a it's a new chapter with a bigger vision for not just being a granting organization, but somebody who's really on the front lines trying to make a difference towards protecting and preserving um, these traditions that that we love hunting fishing trapping all of the outdoor lifestyle um you know traditions that we have here in america so they'll they'll broaden out into a, a into a more outdoors lifestyle you think in terms of yeah. fishing included in that in that umbrella yeah for sure i think the you know the vision is that look as hunters, we, we need a, a much bigger pool of people to pull from to protect not only what we love to do, um, but the other traditions in the outdoors as well. And I think what we've seen is that as the threats grow, and they are very real, as you and I have talked about in the past, but you know they're, they're lobbying um, hunting, fishing, farming uh, in together and trying mm-hmm. to not only um, ban them, but now there's efforts underway like that in Oregon which would have made it a criminal act to kill a rabbit, to hunt a rabbit, to catch a fish, or to raise livestock um, for your family to eat. Um, so that's, that's the fringe radical groups that are unfortunately popping up and trying to you know, end the lifestyle that we love. And I think it's going to take an all-in effort from all of these groups working together to at least stem the tide and hopefully bring more people back to the fact that these are traditions that have been given to us from God, and in order for them to continue, um, we need to speak up, stand up, and start raising our voices to protect them before it's too late. Mm-hmm. So IOTR is um, is failing you, International Order of T. Roosevelt. We had the, uh, I would say, uh, probably the first executive director on here, really, Skipworth, back in the day. Um, but for those that may have missed that episode, um, can you give a little bit of, I know it, you just explained it coming from Shikar, but could you give some 
um, maybe background to the, sort of like the formation of IOTR, why this, why, why IOTR, and why the name, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, yeah, this this organization, and um, yeah, there there's videos out there that people can see on our website that are told by our chairman Wes Bates, um, who's been involved with this for a long time. But I think it's just a, a difference of visions where um, membership organizations were created. And, you know, um, Wes and a number of people that were on the foundation board wanted to have a much more active role in what was being done in conservation causes and hunting causes across the, the globe. And so they broke away from um, the membership organization and started their own journey um, as International Order of T. Roosevelt. And I think the name is is just incredible, right? To be able to do this type of work um, in the shadow of the person who, without him, we wouldn't have the North American model in T. Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, our 26th president, I think is uh, it's quite a legacy to live up to um, and one that we don't take lightly for sure. But yeah. that's, the, that's the beginnings. Um, Aurelia was on and, and she um, helped build up the organization, take, took us on a path towards being, you know, more conservation minded and trying to get um, some programs on the books that we could potentially partner with to make a big difference on conservation. And one of those that we're continuing is the, the sage grouse project out um, in Wyoming, where we're forging a partnership with those folks out there who are breaking, I think, all norms, I would say, when it comes to um, raising, breeding, and showing that you can um, bring back the sage grouse from captivity and hopefully release it into the wild to uh, have a huntable species of that population of game birds once again. So those are the kinds of exciting projects that we're working on at IOTR on the conservation. Yeah. Let's stick into that sage grass project a little bit because that's obviously was something we talked to Aurelia about. Um, was way at the beginning of of its sort of initiation, and there are detractors associated with this project. There are detractors to say sage grouse are not like pheasants, Luke. Pheasant. Sage grouse cannot be reared. They cannot be promulgated. And they cannot be created in such a way to reestablish wild populations. So why are you throwing money, Luke, at a at a project that is doomed to fail? Yeah, well, they're wrong. And I've seen the birds. Um, I've talked to the guy, a guy named Carl, who is one of the most passionate conservation people that I've met in this journey so far. And this is his his passion project. It's written on his heart to be able to go out and collect these wild eggs. With, a, with the grant and the work of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, monitoring everything along the way. Um, and he came up with a strategy to actually break the norm. Um, he was told by every biologist in the world and literally laughed at when he, they said, well, you're going to, they're never going to survive. And Carl found a way. And that's proprietary. And we'll leave Carl to talk about that with you one day. But um, what he's doing is literally breaking the mold and I think something that uh, will hopefully be replicated and modeled to ensure that these types of species, these game birds that we want to bring back into the wildlife, um, will continue. And so we're excited to be partnering with Carl. We're excited to work alongside of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department that has blessed this, this uh, experiment moving forward. And I think within the next six to eight months, we're going to be seeing the first pen raised 
wild sage grouse being released back into cat being released back into the wild um and breaking all of the norms that all of these know-it-all biologists said would never be done um and a guy named carl from wyoming found a way and it's exciting really exciting to think about it so what is iotr's specific role in a project like that luke and so we we are we're funding it we're we're the largest um donor to that at, to that project um and again we have a partnership with carl to allow him to move forward and you know continue to raise these birds in captivity and hopefully release them into the wild um and show that it can be done and so we are the we're the jet fuel behind that that plane moving down the track so pretty excited about it i think we are on a really good path um and i think it's something that could be replicable and we've already had a lot of interest from other states, obviously in the West, who want to see this bird come back in a big way. Um, and I think it again, it just shows yet again um, private philanthropy, hunters largely stepping up to the plate to experiment and find ways to protect these species that we all adore, that we all love to hunt. But at the same time, uh, we want to see continued on to the next generation here in America. So we're we're honored to be a part of it and uh, look forward to seeing some pretty exciting results coming out of Wyoming here soon. I'm not too familiar with sage grouse in terms of its population dynamics. Um, again, and, and, and maybe I'm even misstating here, but I think prairie chickens are probably even lower down on the spectrum, right, in terms of their scarcity and endangered uh, um, yep. probably potential listing. W where are we with sage grouse right now, Luke? So they're, they're on the, the threatened list. Um, they are okay. at a place where there are just a little bit more numbers of them than there are the greater prairie chicken. But they're, they're one of those birds that, uh, you know, they've been watching for a long time. And, of course, the kind of the environmental left's real position on this is they're using this bird and the greater sage grouse to try and shut down access to land all across the west. And they're not only doing that, but of course it has an impact on hunting and fishing and other outdoor pursuits, but it also has an impact on energy exploration, ranching, farming in general. And so we also think that there's wide opportunities for partnership with all of those industries that are impacted by, um, you know, the attempts to use this bird as a way to shut off Western development um, and, you know, shut off access to millions of acres of huntable um, ground in the West. and as you and I both know, that's one of the biggest risks that we have, or one of the biggest, I guess, problems that we hear from hunters across the board is losing access to land um, is, is literally pushing people out of the sport. And it's something that, again, we think has multiple prongs that uh, will hopefully um, you know, take root with this project in Wyoming and be one that's replicable and scalable to show, again, hunters stepping up to the plate to protect these threatened species and bring them back for people's enjoyment with the goal of having a huntable species of these birds, uh, not only in Wyoming, but other Western states as well. Mm -hmm. Did you, what did you say you think in the next six months? Yeah, six to eight months. We, and it's, it's all determined on uh, what the Wyoming game and fish is allowing as far as, you know, a release plan and those types Permits of things. and stuff. Right, right. Yeah. But that's what we anticipate. What, do you have a mission objective? Like, is it, Robbie, we want 500 released? Do we want 1,000 released? Do we have a number? Yeah, not numbers so far. Um, again, you know, this is, 
this is something that uh, you know is is pretty new in the making. This project I think has only been off the ground for about two or three years. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we our hope is that we can scale this into something where you know twenty five thousand birds or more are being raised and released on an annualized basis. But we're a long ways from that yet. That's the that's sure, kind of sure. the up end of the objective. Um, but again, that's that's what we think is possible with a project like this. Is the habitat there to support it? Like Absolutely. there's no issues with habitat restoration or habitat availability? Yep. There's definitely habitat available. Um, and that's one of the things that the guys in Wyoming are working with Game and Fish on is finding the the right, the, the right locations to release these birds and find success with taking them back to their wild habitat. Um, and we're pretty confident in what they're laying out. Obviously, otherwise we want to be involved in, in funding the project. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's just one of the projects. I know that you guys, um, you've got another project. But before we talk about that other project, talk about, because the last time, again, we had Aurelia on here and we probably talked through, gosh, I think it was four projects, um, <laughs> Luke, or five projects or whatnot. So what happened to the other three? Well, again, we, we went back in and took a look at those projects and just looked at long-term viability based on, you know, the resources that the budget that we've been given from our organization. And, you know, multiple numbers of those projects, while, while, well, while very well-intentioned, um, I think would have been hard for us to, to see the kind of impact that we were hoping to see with the money that we have to spend. And so we've, um, you know, broken off some of those partnerships, but at the same time, um, we'll continue to look for opportunities to work with them because they're well-intentioned. But at the same time, like I said, we just have to be careful with the money that we have in our budget and didn't want to make any <laughs> false promises based on, you know, their ability to scale up their projects and have success as well. Sure, sure, sure. So you got one more project in the hopper. Let's yeah. talk about that one. Yeah, so this is a big one. Um, yeah, we we have, uh, our board has unanimously approved our ability to move forward with launching our own C4. Um, IOTR is the C3 vehicle that we have. And we've now built a C4 out called T. Roosevelt Action, which will allow us to take a much more active role in, in hunting and fishing policy across the country. Um, and we are launching uh, an effort as of last week that we are trying to expand the constitutional right to hunt and fish in four states this year. Um, we've already had success in three of them, uh, getting bills introduced that will accomplish that goal. And this is something that I think needs a lot of education on why this matters. Um, but it's something that I've seen over the last three years working in the hunting advocacy space that we know that the anti-hunters are really targeting states that don't have these protections in place. When you talk about what was done on the predator hunting front just last year, where Colorado and Arizona um, saw potential bans coming forward for outlawing the hunting of lynx and bobcat and other predator species. And then also in the state of Washington, which had outlawed spring bear hunting, it's very clear where these anti-hunting groups, um, and what I call the radical anti-hunting cabal, is taking their efforts to states that don't have these protections in place because it's a lot easier for them to sneak them through when you don't have an informed and involved and educated public who understands the benefits of hunting and outdoors and conservation traditions like this. Um, and so that's why we've made this our top priority at T. Roosevelt Action and are making some pretty significant headway already at uh, moving these states forward with these plans to enshrine these protections. And what we think about it is, is just it's another 
layer of protection for these fundamental freedoms and, that are unfortunately, um, you know, starting to slide in this country. And again, just over the last five years, we've had two million hunters walk away from the sport of hunting. Fishing is still seeing some some good numbers of participation, but it's not very long until um, you know those threats will be coming to that sport as well. And so we think that this is a, a way for us to not only protect these things moving forward, but also to ensure that uh, in states that have the ability to protect them, that uh, it's done as quickly as possible to prevent these these efforts, like I talked about in Oregon, criminalizing hunting, fishing, and farming from taking hold um, because of the political winds shifting one way or another. Yeah, that the, that's the IP13 crowd that are trying to push things around. Luke, talk to me about... I, I guess I'm not politically savvy enough to understand how does the that protection, that amendment, you know, the, the amendment to protect, isn't it an amendment? Maybe my language is all messed up, but yeah. the, the, this right to this right of protecting hunting and fishing on a state level, how does that, can you walk, step us through like how it protects, how does it add that extra layer? Yeah. Maybe a better question. So it has a higher power than your traditional law, right? Um, you could change laws, happens all the time. Um, but what the constitutional amendment does is it basically says this has a higher power than law because it has the backing of the people. So in every state that I just mentioned, Iowa, Ohio, Florida, South Dakota, it takes multiple processes or multiple sessions of the legislature to pass a resolution that says we want to protect hunting and fishing. And the language is very straightforward um, and it's easy to understand for people. So in Iowa, I was just there last week and testified on support of House Joint Resolution 2, which is the constitutional right to hunt and fish in Iowa. And that resolution says that these traditions will be protected moving forward. The process in Iowa is they have to pass it this session, um, and we're pretty confident that that's going to happen. They have strong, um, you know, conservative pro-hunting majorities in both the, the House and the Senate. Um, and then Kim, Governor Kim Reynolds is a, a true champion on these types of issues as well. So we're working with her office to get her backing on this as well. But then it has to, once it passes this legislative session, then it has to pass a successive legislative session before it can go to the ballot. And that's the key. What we've seen across the country in the other 23 states who have this protection is that once it gets to the ballot, these people in these states support these traditions because even if they don't hunt or fish, or they're a non-hunting public member, right? They know somebody who does. And these are traditions that need to be continued in these states, have wide backing of the people, and they'll go and vote in support of these amendments. You know, they've passed anywhere from 52 to 70%. Um, and that's what we're looking to do is alongside of this, these laws that will be passed, it has a higher power than law because it has the backing of the people. And I think that's the whole key to why we think this is such an important part of protecting these traditions moving forward. Has there ever been an amendment brought forward to enshrine the right to hunt and fish on a state level and it not pass? Arizona is the only one. Um, and, and I think it's a couple of reasons there. So Arizona's amendment wasn't as clear and straightforward as the ones that I'm talking about now. They also included some things that would have changed the way that um, you know natural resource management happens in that state. So included taking away some of the authorities of the Game and Fish Department in Arizona 
Um, and then the anti-hunters came in and used that as an attack piece against the constitutional amendment in general. And so it failed by a couple of points. It did, didn't get the mm. 50, 50 plus one threshold that it needed. So that's the only state where it's failed. There's one currently right now. Isn't there one in Montana? Um, There's one that's right now. I thought there was one in some of the Western states, like the right to protect hunting or something like that. Potentially. I, I think Montana already has the constitutional right to hunt in their constitution. Okay, okay, okay. But yeah, I, I'm not aware of any. Um, again, these are the four states that we've focused in on because of their strong pro-hunting majorities and support from governors who should be passing these types of protections. So when this protection is in place, yep. and let's assume some sort of anti-hunting, anti let's just say, let's just call it like an anti-trapping bill, yep. comes in play. How does that protection play in when something like that comes into play? So I have a personal story with this one. So okay. in my previous job at Hunter Nation, um, when we sued the state of Wisconsin, when I personally sued the state of Wisconsin for blocking our wolf hunt that was statutorily required here in Wisconsin, we blocked it not only because they were, the DNR didn't move forward with the statutorily required season, but then we also challenged that they were violating my constitutional right to hunt. And because in both of those instances, the judge ruled with us, it gave it an extra layer of protection to say, yes, this needs to happen now. And because you were violating my constitutional right to hunt, it gave even quicker, right? It, they had to act because of that constitutional infringement. And so that's where my personal experience was like, this is, this is a really surefire way to protect what we love to do in the outdoors, what we need to continue to do to manage these species. Um, and that's where the experience came from to say that was kind of like the light bulb moment for me. Like, this is really important because if we ever get to the point where we're fighting these out in the courts, if we have a constitutionally backed right to hunt and fish that is, you know, widely supported by the people here in Wisconsin, it passed with almost 73% support. Um, it's a lot more likely for us to be able to protect hunting and fishing seasons in general if we have this constitutional protection in place. And so that's why I think it's such a critical component of seeing these things protected moving into the future. Mm -hmm. So it would be a legal route that gives us cover versus, again, I'm just trying to think through like an anti-hunting bill. Yeah. Would the amendment, I don't think the constitutional right would affect the bill at all, right? Until it, say, got passed. And then when Correct. it got passed is when you have the power. Correct. Correct. Yep. And, and again, it has to have the backing of the people. So in every one of these states that we're working in, all four of them, uh, the state of Florida has the highest threshold where once it passes the legislature, it goes to the people and the people have to support amending the constitution with 60% of the vote. So it's a higher threshold than even some of these states that okay. say now 50% plus one. So that's what we're okay. aiming for. And I think that's the real opportunity, um, as I've talked to my board and, and other groups, is we have a real opportunity once these ballot initiatives come forward to educate the public about why hunting and fishing and these conservation traditions need to continue. Unfortunately, what I've seen across the board is that we've been outspent 10 to 20 to 1 in other states who've tried this by the anti-hunters because we're not telling our story. And you and I have talked about this. The economic impact of the sport of hunting and fishing is 
hundreds of billions of dollars and yeah. supporting, you know, a million jobs just in the hunting sector alone. And if you take these traditions away, what what who's going to step in to replace those dollars? And so when I when yeah. I went and testified in 12 states last year on different bills, I'd ask that question all the time of the anti-hunters. Well, if you're going to ban this segment of hunting and your ultimate goal is to do away with hunting as we know it in North America, then what's your plan to step in and fund the billions of dollars that we as hunters and conservationists put in to protect our game species, to see these you know, public lands open and, and accessible for everyone to enjoy? And it's just crickets coming back from the other and, side and, because the and, reality and. Is, is they don't have a good funding mechanism, right? That's what I think was part of the genius of the North American model is we as hunters and anglers and trappers pay for a large majority of the conservation that's done in America. And so we are, have a vested interest in seeing these things continue, even if you're not a hunter, right? Um, and so yep. I think that's the real argument that I look forward to making with the public when these things get on the ballot. Yeah. The, you know, it's interesting you say that I just came back from the Western Hunting Expo and I think in total, I think that all the auction tags pulled in like 7.6 million, regardless of, Unbelievable. regardless of like the, the little $5 raffles that everyone jumped in on, yeah. but two tags specifically, the, the, the Antelope Island mule deer tag that I think the previous highest was like three fifty. $350,000 went for $500,000. Okay, number one. Then the Arizona governor's mule deer tag, who private, previous to this went for like four ten, went for $725,000. Wow. Now, I can't wrap my head around having expendable income like that. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. But I'm glad for someone that does. Amen. Because... Two tags, 1.2 million, take 10% out of that for someone for the admin that they do kind of scenario. Um, you're talking about just for two, two, two animals, two tags, $1.1 million raised that went straight to habitat conservation, habitat restoration, wildlife restoration, wildlife conservation in Utah and the state of Arizona. Uh, there is no other model that can generate that amount of money that quickly that goes directly to these agencies, these state agencies that are always underfunded anyway. Amen. It's amazing. It's amazing. And there, therein lies the story, right? Show me another, this Humane Society of the United States, they're a $150 million a year nonprofit organization that loves to run their ads about protecting dogs and cats, which again, I'm a pet owner. I love, love my dog. But at the same time, one of their top stated goals is to end big game hunting in North America. I don't see them rushing forward to give a part of their budget away to ensure access to parks and recreation and funding law enforcement agents to go out and make sure that these resources are protected. That's us. <laughs> That's what hunters, anglers, trappers, people who have a vested financial interest in seeing these these pursuits continue. We're the ones that do that, not them. And I think that is one of the strongest arguments that we as hunters and people who live this lifestyle fail to make every day, is point out the fact mm -hmm. that you're going to end this stuff, then you better come to the table with a bigger checkbook than we have, because somebody's going to have to fund it if you want to continue to see these, mm -hmm. you know, wild game and, and wild places be open and accessible for future generations.
Look, wildlife populations doing well in the United States and around the world is bad for business. Yeah. From the HSUA side of things. It is. Isn't that sad? <laughs> it's antithetical. Yeah. Antithetical to the, their whole mission statement, which is, no I, doubt. Don't, I just don't get it, man. Yeah. Just but you can't point that it. out. You know, and like last week in Iowa, I was testifying on this bill, and the HSUS lobbyist was there and said, hey, you know, I think we're often misunderstood. HSUS isn't really against hunting. And I nearly laughed out loud when he said it. And I'm like, again, in my testimony, I said, if they're not against hunting, then why is it that every room that I'm in across the country testifying to protect the future of hunting, that they're one of the main opposition to our lifestyle, right? You can't have one and then say that kind of stuff. And I think that's where they just have people buffaloed is, oh, nope, we're in this to protect the cute little pets. No, you're not. You're in this to end big game hunting in North America. And, and the other point, Robbie, as you and I have discussed before, is if you end those pursuits here, you end them across the world, right? You end them across the world. Because it's, yep. it's American hunters who go to Africa and go abound mm -hmm. and hunt all of these different species and bring all of our revenue with us. And if you close that down, it's over everywhere. Yep. Yep. 100%. 100%. So are all these states that you are currently working, do they have the same double ballot? Sorry, double pass the legislature and then it goes to ballot? No. That's just in Iowa. So um, in Ohio, Florida, and South Dakota, it has to pass, or I should say in Florida and Ohio, has to pass with 50% of the vote in both houses. Then it goes on to the next available ballot for consideration for the voters. So the hope is uh, two out of those four states will have it on their ballot as early as 2024. Uh, Ohio and Florida have that opportunity if they continue to make progress. Um, and the legislature and the governors make these things a priority. We could have people voting on hunting and fishing being protected in both of those states in 2024. Okay. And South Dakota, 2025? 2025. They could, they could have the choice. That's weird. South Dakota, you would think they would have had it already, man. You know? That's the response I've gotten from just about everybody I've talked to <laughs> South Dakota. What do you mean we don't have it? No, you don't have this. And you need to get it locked but what down. Is the hunting, what is the hunting rate in South Dakota per, per capita? must be close uh, to like 70, the, 80%. I think, it's the I think it's the largest per capita in, in, this, in the country um, for number of hunters and anglers. So, yeah. And that, that was the same response. What do you mean we don't have this? No, you're not one of the 23 states. Well, we need to get that done. Yes, you do. Jeez. Amazing. Amazing. So what's on the horizon, man? I know you've got these, obviously this is a lot of work that you guys yeah. have got going, but anything else coming that you want to let everyone know about? Since yeah, so we have the job. How long have you been on the job now? Uh, this is uh, going on three months, so. Three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, three yeah. Months. yeah. Um, but now we have our big event coming up in Naples, our big annual fundraiser that we do in Naples. So if people are interested in supporting us, um, we're going to have some incredible speakers there. We have Governor DeSantis. We have uh, former Governor Huckabee. We have Charlie Kirk, who is a partner with us. Um, Turning Point has been a longtime partner with IOTR. And uh, we're going to have a pretty incredible, I think it's probably the, the best auction that I've seen yet. Um, and the really cool part is we're working with um, some folks who are not only donating hunts, but also stepping up and personally donating to the cause of IOTR as one of our founding um, 
you know, outfitters or, or, or outfitters that we're working with. So it's a, it's a, going to be an incredible auction, incredible opportunity to hopefully partner up with a bunch of these folks um, to protect the future of hunting and conservation. And uh, that's coming up on April 27th. And uh, people can go to our website at troosevelt.org for more info about that. Um, and then from there, man, we're, we're really ramping up um, that partnership with Turning Point. We're talking to Charlie and his team, and we think we have some real opportunities. And you and I have kind of discussed this in passing before. But I think one of the biggest opportunities we as sportsmen, hunters, anglers have is bringing more people into our sport, figuring out a way to kind of stem this tide of people that are walking away. And the biggest opportunity that I've seen there is that uh, there was a North Carolina state study that was done. I think you said you've had this professor on your show or on yeah, your Yeah, Rich and Tory. Yeah. Yep. That Amazing. Like 23%. Unbelievable, right? Like that's Unbelievable that's numbers. Future. That's the future. Like, if we can get these 18 to 25-year-old Americans who, in general, support hunting because they see it as a reliable way to bring protein back to themselves and their families engaged and involved and break down the barriers that exist between thinking that it's a good thing and actually participating in it. Um, I think we're going to have some real opportunities to do that with our partnership with Turning Point. And I'm excited to be working with Charlie and his team. We just had a, a big call about it today. And so I will be sure to bring those uh, breakthroughs back to your, your crowd and your audience. But uh, I'm really excited about that moving forward. Oh, excellent, man. No, that's good stuff. The, that study was super eye-opening 23 percent when it's when you sort of um manipulated across the board for the number of university students that are actually in this country it's like a six to eight million dollar number it's an yeah. amazing number it's almost 80 you know 60 percent 70 percent of what our current hunter numbers are it's quite right. mind-blowing well, look, so anyone can come anyone can come to the naples event they just yep. need to sign it's up and sign um, up get, and it, get again, away it, it, well, yeah, it's a it's our fundraiser, so it's uh, you know it's something. I think the general admission costs there are about twenty five hundred bucks, um, but again, that's all okay. goes right back to the operation to to be able to support what we're doing. And uh, yeah, so check it out. We have a a few rooms left down there, and we're really excited about that event moving forward. And then it's just again we're laser focused on trying to get these right to hunt and fish put on the ballot in these four states and in the next year ahead. So, hundred percent. Well, I wish I could be there with you in Naples. Um, I will be on a mountaintop somewhere in New Zealand filming some <laughs> trapping work that we are funding. Uh, awesome. But I will certainly raise a beer to you guys and hope you have a phenomenal fundraising event and, and all the success to you guys. Um, yeah, we'll see. Look forward to hearing what, what, what the outcomes of both projects. Um, see what happens. Awesome, man. Really appreciate Thanks, your Luke. support, Robbie. You're welcome, brother. Cheers, Mike. All right. Take care, buddy. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. 
Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.